0: Hi, this is Carl Gottlieb. I'm the author of Jaws and The Jaws Log and the movie The Jerk. And I wrote a book that you might be interested in called The Little Blue Book for Filmmakers. Next on On Screen and Beyond.
1: It is time once again for On Screen and Beyond, the weekly show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with a guest from the TV, movie, or music industry. This is episode 242 of On Screen and Beyond. I'm your host, Brian Zemrak, and this week on the show, we have a fascinating guest coming your way. You may not recognize his name right off, Carl Gottlieb, okay? Maybe you don't recognize the name, but you do know his work. Jaws. He wrote Jaws. He wrote The Jerk for Steve Martin. He wrote Caveman. He directed Caveman. He's been in a lot of different films. He's uh, written them. He's been acting in some. He's just got so many things going on. And we're going to talk about all that stuff. It's going to be a great show. So stick around. Be sure to catch him. Kyle Gottlieb coming up in a few minutes right here on On Screen and Beyond. Well, 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 time is running out. I hope uh, you've been doing all your Christmas shopping and your holiday shopping and whatever you celebrate. But um, if you do, go to com and go to our sponsors and go through our site to get to theirs. It'll help support the show. We'd appreciate that. If you're on Facebook, be sure to like us. And uh, on iTunes, well, leave us a review. And most of all keep listening to on screen and beyond we love it i uh, love your emails if you have a suggestion that you'd like to uh, give us here at on screen and beyond send it to us at feedback at on and beyond see what i can do about getting that person on for you all right that's about it i think it's uh time to now take a peek at what's coming your way as far as remake on remake madness here on on screen and beyond please hang up and try again Remake Madness. Well, the TV show Family Guy is headed to the big screen from Seth MacFarlane. And the Jim Henson Company will remake the story of Pinocchio. And this one promises to be a darker version. Directed by Guillermo del Toro. So, he's gonna, you know he's going to put a twist on it. And Cate Blanchett is slated to star in Disney's remake of Cinderella. This time, it's a live-action film. And it's looking for release in 2013. That is it for Remake Madness. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies? Upcoming new movies, well, the story of Susan Boyle, the British singer who rose to fame on Britain's Got Talent, will be made into a movie called I Dreamed a Dream. And Robert De Niro is one of the producers of a biopic on Queen's lead singer Freddie Mercury. And you can look for it in 2014. It's going to be starring Sasha Baron Cohen. And 2014 will also bring us a movie about the Great Wall of China called The Great Wall. And it deals with a mystery surrounding the construction of the Great Wall. That is it for upcoming new movies next on On Screen to Beyond, taking you down to Sequel City to find out what's coming away as far as sequels.
0: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: Sequel City, well, Rio 2, we've talked about that already, but it's going to be released on April 14th, 2014, and will center it around... The World Cup Soccer Tournaments, and it's going to be with Blue and Jules Babies. And the Human Centipede 3, the final sequence, crawls into theaters on 2013. And look for Dan Aykroyd. He says Ghostbusters 3 will be made with or without Bill Murray. And rumors have been around for years about this one getting made but it keeps uh, keeps coming at us. We'll see what happens. That's it for uh, Sequel City. And next on On Screen to Beyond, we'll to take a peek at what's coming away as far as TV on DVD. TV on DVD, well, February 19th, you can look for The Six Million Dollar Man Season 3 in a six-disc set. And plans are out for Warner Archives to release Richard Chamberlain's Dr. Kildare on DVD in 2013. And February 12th, you can look for Weed's Season 8 to land on DVD and Blu-ray. That's it for TV on DVD. Next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as movies on DVD? (laughs) Movies on DVD, well, the horror film The Collection comes to DVD in March. And you can look for Anthony Hopkins as he stars in Hitchcock, which will slash its way into DVD... In March, as well as The Life of Pi is also going to be coming your way in March. That's it for Movies on DVD. Coming up next on On Screen be on, Carl Grotley. He's, he's just done so much stuff. It's, it's unbelievable. He's, he's got a lot of comedy stuff. And, uh, you know, The Jerk for Steve Martin, The Jerk 2. And he's also done Caveman. And uh, the list just goes on and on of the things that he's done. Uh, but the biggest one, of course, is Jaws. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, We got just so much stuff to talk about. He's got a new book out, too. It's uh, called The Little Blue Book for Filmmakers. And we're going to talk about that and a lot more. Kyle Gottlieb is next, right here on On Screen and Beyond. Joining me today on On Screen and Beyond is a screenwriter who has given us Caveman with Ringo Starr, The Jerk with Steve Martin, the classic film Jaws, and many others on the big screen. On TV, he has written for Saturday Night Live, The Odd Couple, Music Scene, and The Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. He currently has a book out called The Little Blue Book for Filmmakers, which is a must, i got to tell you, for all aspiring filmmakers. It's Kyle Gottlieb. Kyle, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. Oh, Good to be here. Thanks. Kyle, first off, I want to, I want to talk about your book because it's a great little book. Uh, if, if anybody is interested in filmmaking, this is a, definitely a must.
0: That was our intention. We wanted to cover most of the bases, and so that if you're out there and you're contemplating a career in film, or even just going into filmmaking as a, a student or a, a, you know high school, college, and do, doesn't matter. It, it's a book that's written to introduce you to the business
1: of movies. Right. And and the, the thing I gotta tell everybody because you know they can't see us, so but I'm holding the book in front of me right now, and this is a great stocking stuffer. <laughs> so if somebody's got somebody who is a filmmaker or wants to be a filmmaker, this is the book to get because it's loaded with all kinds of information and, and you know, it's surprising how much you've packed into such a little book.
0: Yeah, we we try to be thorough and uh, funny. <laughs> there's, there's some things in there that are, that are, are there for a laugh. And the, the point was to actually uh, make the book in a binding and a type size that was convenient to carry. It's kind of a mm-hmm. made for a backpack.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Now, do I understand right that, that you also sort of made this as a, uh, almost like a teaching guide?
0: Yes. I, I was, uh, I teach screenwriting at, at very institutions include, you know, AI, uh, the American Film Institute and the University of Southern California and Columbia University in New York, uh, I've been at all the uh, University of Southern California. I, 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 uh, I have these classes both for graduate students and for undergraduates and there's a lot that, as an instructor, that you assume the kids know when they come in the room. And a lot of the time they don't. And I found that my lectures were—I had to spend some time on on deep background, on history, on backstory. You know why we do the things we do, Mm -hmm. and whether you're making digital film or little short bits that you're shooting on your iPhone to put up on YouTube, uh, the techniques and the requirements are kind of all the same, whether you're making. The Matrix, or you know, a cat video. Mm-hmm. There's the, the things that it helps to know, and we put all that in the covers of the book. Yeah. Now
1: you mentioned about humor. Looking at the at your credits of the things that you've done, your humor is something I can relate to because it's it's my kind of humor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not everybody's humor, but it it is something that I enjoy because you've written for some different shows that just were you know really good shows but in the book you've got so many different things in there Uh, what do you feel is the most common mistake that beginning filmmakers or even we can't just say beginning you know people who are are in the business that, that what's the most common mistake that they make uh you lose sight
0: of the fact that it's a collaboration even if it's just yourself and a friend who's poking the cat from off camera for the video uh you have to have people and animals but mostly people working together to to make anything in the visual arts uh, painters can work alone perhaps or sculptors but even they have assistance you have a, you have a community of effort that produces good films mm-hmm. and you know we use the word films now in, interchangeably it's not like we're processing celluloid anymore Right. Most of it's on a digital chip, but the vocabulary is going to kind of hang over for a while. Uh, Any kind of combined effort uh, is going to be required. Any kind of effort is going to require a combination of talents, whether it's an eye for composition, an ear for dialogue, a sense of humor, very important. Uh, All these things, they can come from many sources, but if they're pooled together the result is usually greater than the sum of the parts.
1: How did you meet up uh, meet up with Tony Attell to, to become co-authors on this book?
0: Well, I knew her decades ago when she was a very successful street performer in San Francisco. She was known as Toad the Mime and was uh, quite quite the figure in, in, in San Francisco. Uh, and then, of course, uh, how, how long can you be a street mime? Uh, she studied with some of the greats, uh, Jean-Louis Barrault and, and uh, Mar- uh, Marcel Marceau in wow. France and Momoko Iyamo in, in Japan. And then she perfected the art of mime, and, and she was drifting into acting, and where she acted and, and was a comedian. Uh, she worked on The New laugh uh when that show was being put together. and And I knew her, you know, Kind of all along the way we were, our, our paths kept crossing uh, we were very good friends we uh, spent some time together uh, in Los Angeles and San Francisco and uh, I recently and she was doing a lot of teaching and, and I had helped her and I'd come to some of her classes and been a guest at, at her classes and I saw some of the problems she was dealing with and She said, you know, the people really like your stories and how you explain things. You know, we should do something together to, you know, it started as just something we could hand out to students at the beginning of the the term so that they would, you know, have have a vocabulary. And then it turned into a book. We said, you know what, there's a lot of information here, a lot of stuff that we both know about. And Tony's strength is in acting. She teaches it. She teaches improvisation, acting for camera. She has... Uh, the Atel method, which is something she teaches, uh, it, it it just seemed a natural fit for us to get together and and mm-hmm. put it all in a book.
1: Yeah. Now, with all the different things you have in the book, you have director things for directors, for writers, for actors, for producers. Uh, running down what you've done, director, that's a check mark for you. Writer, that's a check mark for you. Director, you know, producer, actor, you've done it all. <laughs> that made it
0: easier to write the book. There was nothing in there that I had to research to see. How is it done?
1: Right. Yeah. Now, what do you consider yourself? Do you consider yourself a director or a writer, an actor or a producer?
0: I think I have to quote a wonderful old studio writer named Mel Shabelson, who was all of those things. And I met him when I was at the writer's guild where I serve the community of writers. Um, I'm in our union. I'm secretary treasurer. I've been vice president. I've been on the board of directors. But Mel Sha- put that aside. Mel Shavelson once said, "I'm a writer by choice, a producer by necessity, and a director out of self-defense." <laughs> and that, that kind of that kind of sums it up. I'm a writer. I work. You know, words are my métier. Yeah. But since uh, Film and television is much more than just words. Mm -hmm. I basically had to learn to do all the other things in order to preserve the words.
1: Yeah. I'd like to get into a little bit of your background, just so people know who is behind this book. When you started out, did you want to be a director or a a writer? What was your first ambition when you started in the business?
0: I graduated from uh, Syracuse University with a dual major, in theater and journalism, so I was thinking of being a playwright or a critic. You know, of very wordy occupations mm-hmm. and worthy too, <laughs> worthy and worthy. And I made a kind of a college promise. Uh, you know, when you're setting out on your career goals and you're 21, you kind of figure, oh, you, you I really know what I want. <laughs> and and uh, and one of the promises stuck, and that promise was to do nothing. to make a living except something that was related to the arts. Uh, If if I wasn't going to be on stage, I would work backstage. If I wasn't working backstage, I'd hang lights. If I wasn't hanging lights or working backstage or performing, I would do publicity or PR or write reviews. Uh, I never strayed into bartending, uh, carpentry, taxi driving.
1: Mm -hmm, uh, yeah.
0: Confidence games, <laughs> pool hustling, all the other avenues that that uh, people in show business are forced into, because you do have to have kind of a fallback profession if you're going to live in this life. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I, I said I'm never going to do anything but that. So I managed to earn a living, albeit a very, very small one. Uh, I always managed to pay the rent uh, by doing something show business related, and that led me down just this variety of avenues where I could, uh, you know, I was helping publicize a friend's short film. But then I had to spend a lot of time with the editor to see how the film was going, what the story was going to be. And in the process, the editor explained what she was doing. And I said, oh, I, I, I get that. You have to put film together in a certain order in order to, for it to make sense when it's projected. And... Voila, you learn stuff about editing. As you write and you see your writing performed by other people, you realize, okay, this kind of dialogue works. This other kind of dialogue is stilted and and uncomfortable for the actors and probably awkward for the audience to listen to. Don't do it that way. Do it this way. And you, you pick up a million and one tools of the professional. And then one day you wake up and you are a professional you know you can do a competent job under any circumstances uh, whenever you're asked yeah. or paid or both <laughs> and, and and that's and that was that was the fun of it so uh, I did all those things I was a, a an editor for a movie industry trade paper. I hung lights in a coffee house I worked in Greenwich village. Uh, being a, you know an MC in a stand-up, and then adjusting the sound and the lighting system for the other act, uh, it was just a, just a lot of stuff that I had to do, uh, and all you know all of it stuck. Knowledge is never wasted.
1: So, was the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour your first writing job?
0: Uh, it was yeah. Well, yes, because that was that was the the job on which I got my writers guild card. So yes, that was I had done writing and directing, you know, casually with, you know, little underground films before that. Mm-hmm. That was my first job in the industry.
1: Do you go up and and sign up for, you know, for an not an audition, but I mean how does a writer get a job?
0: <laughs> well, you you read the writers daily and you see the ads then you go to the advertising section and you see all the writers jobs that are being advertised. Uh, if if only uh <laughs> no what what happened was i was uh i was performing in a in a satirical improvisational review in San Francisco mm-hmm. called the committee and we were very successful the show ran 12 years you know two shows a night three on saturday six days a week and in late 60s we opened a Uh, version of the show in Los Angeles. So I came to L.A. to perform. Where I did, I was improvising nightly on the Sunset Strip, right in the heart of the action. And uh, we were very popular. The show was a success in Los Angeles. And a lot of people came to see the show, including the Smothers Brothers and their talent bookers. And they saw me, and they were putting together a writing staff for a summer replacement show for the Smothers Brothers, And that turned out to be the Glen Campbell show. That was Glenn Campbell's debut on television. Mm -hmm. And they wanted... uh, The Smothers Brothers were active producers of their film, of of their film, of their television show, Mm -hmm. and they wanted a a bunch of new writers. So they hired, you know, all the bright, funny people that they saw kind of in the clubs and working around. We didn't necessarily have television experience, but they figured that was a plus.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So on that staff... Of new writers who had their first job in television, was me, Rob Reiner, wow, Steve Martin, wow, <laughs> uh, Lorenzo Music, who created the Bob Newhart, the yes. Bob Newhart show, and Rhoda, um, Chris Beard and Alan Bly, who had produced, uh, who had done Laugh In, mm-hmm. uh, Bob Einstein, who's Super Dave Osborne, that was, that was the young crowd. Wow. John Hartford. Uh, great composer, instrumentalist, uh, who wrote Gentle on My Mind. It was, was Glenn's theme song for mm-hmm. a while. Yeah. Uh, and we were all like under 25 and, and working at CBS, Television City in Hollywood, doing a weekly comedy variety show that, surprise, won the Emmy that year. Yeah.
1: Uh, now that show was, was kind of controversial yes, back then. It um, was. Now was that because of the people writing it or because of uh, tom and dick
0: tom and dick had a kind of a depending on how you look at it they had a you know a, a saucy impudent style mm-hmm. or they were anti-establishment right, yeah. or they were commie dupes if you know, <laughs> take your pick across the spectrum uh, but in any case they were they were politically very aware and it was you know it's kind of hard to remember uh, the 60s, uh, but it was a huge time of social turmoil and social change. Uh, a, a, a drug culture was emerging that was benevolent, that wasn't, wasn't poisonous. There was a, a tremendous sense of community, all that, you know, peace and love vibes, get mm-hmm. out of Vietnam now. Uh, all of that was in the air, and we were all a part of it you know you couldn't be a, you know a conscious person in those days and not be aware of the social issues right yeah. especially at a media hub like Los Angeles so or Hollywood or television so we 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 kind of that our social sensibilities crept into the writing and Tom and Dick encouraged it they said let's do a sketch about miscegenation or let's do a sketch about the draft so the message crept into the sketches and the sensibilities of the show. Tom and Dick encouraged it. Tom Tom was very political. Uh, he had been up in Toronto with John Lennon and Yoko Ono at the Bed in
1: mm-hmm. With the Smothers Brothers, that was your first connection with Steve Martin. Uh,
0: I knew him from from the clubs because we had played the same kind of venues in oh. and around Los Angeles. He was a the ice house and the troubadour we had our own theater on the sunset strip uh, but we would go on our on our off nights we'd go see the other acts you know you uh, the world was a smaller place then and you could even in a, a major market like los angeles where there's you know a lot of activity you could cover all the comedy clubs and know what was going on uh, without a lot of effort well, first of all there weren't a lot of comedy clubs in those days this was before you know, a comedy club on every corner. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, so I knew some of the people, and I knew Rob from, Rob Reiner, because he had been in another improvisational group uh, that had kind of modeled itself after the committee. It was called The Session, and he was in it with um, uh, Larry Bishop and Richard Dreyfuss and mm-hmm. some other young people. Yeah. So, you know, we all, our paths were kind of crossed, then we kind of found ourselves, actually getting a paycheck for what we love to do which was hang out and make jokes about the world we lived in.
1: <laughs> it's not a bad way to earn a living, huh? No. <laughs> except,
0: except when you've got a conservative guest who doesn't want to do the sketch the way you wrote it and the taping is in 6 hours and you've got to do a rewrite to keep it funny and keep the guest happy and keep Tom and Dick from, you know, losing their tempers. Uh-huh. Uh,
1: Did that happen often?
0: And it's not so much fun.
1: (laughs) Did that happen often?
0: Well, we tried to avoid those bookings. I mean, Tom and Dick were responsible for booking the show. But every now and then we'd have a guest star uh, who we didn't think would be, you know, funny. Uh, And then it turned out, in most cases, that they were completely amenable to to humor. I mean, Kate Smith, the woman who made a Mm -hmm. a life's work out of singing God Bless America, Yeah. Uh, she did the show and she participated. Uh, Liberace did the show; it was very funny. Uh, you know, he has had a comic streak in him that was kind of unexplored mm-hmm. before we got to him. So it was, it was, uh, it, it was—you know—it was challenging, as they say. But it was, it was just great.
1: Yeah. Now, when the Smothers Brothers ended, uh, after that, you you went to the music scene, right?
0: Yeah, I did a show called Music Scene, yeah. and that was
1: David Steinberg and.
0: David Steinberg, yeah, love that show, Billy Cobham.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah. It was
0: uh, that was a great show. It was uh, it was the first show that combined. It was kind of an ancestor for Saturday Night Live because it it, it com, uh, combined live popular music mm. formed by the artists themselves. Yes, with yeah. comedy, yeah. Uh, and that was that was terrific. And because in those days, most you know most of the shows like Dick Clark and the others. If you were a hot record act, you'd do the show, but you'd lip-sync your record, basically.
1: Right, yes. So
0: maybe maybe you could perform live on Ed Sullivan, but that was just for the Stones and the Beatles and Jay and the Americans and you know, mm-hmm. yeah. the other big acts. But we had every act uh, that was on the Billboard charts on the yeah. music scene.
1: Oh, yeah, I, I, I used Buck to watch Owens, that.
0: Buck Owens, Janis Joplin, and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Johnny Cash, Chuck Berry... Uh, it, it was it was a great show.
1: Legends, Only lasted seventeen episodes, but they they rocked. Why did it Why did it end? You know. Well, it was it was
0: an odd format. It was ABC was trying to dislodge Laugh in from Monday night, and mm-hmm. Family Hour didn't exist then. So ABC had the bright idea of doing a youth oriented show that ran for forty five minutes. Starting at seven thirty,
1: right, and then they did the new people after that, right?
0: The, yeah, you know your television. <laughs> yeah, the new the new people was basically you know, lost the yeah. Lord of the Flies, but you know, yes, what happened when? They, but but basically the you know, the Beaver, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like you know, nice kids uh, stuck on a, stuck on an island having right. to invent a new society. Yes yeah it just goes to show there's nothing new on television and really
1: yeah i mean it's true you know i I just wish that was out on on DVD. I used to i enjoyed that show and, and music scene is out very limited i guess on d v d right yeah the,
0: the, the there was with any music uh show the the uh rights clearances are are difficult because there's a lot of intellectual property issues
1: mm. uh,
0: though a lot of the performances have found their way to YouTube. I mean, if you look up, for example, Janis Joplin, who had this brief stellar career and died, you know, before she actually even reached the top because she was just so, so good and famous and then overdosed. But, uh, uh, you know, the only, some of the few concert performances that are filmed are for music scene. I think if you go to YouTube, you can see some of them.
1: Uh, you can find everything on YouTube. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so, was it difficult writing in a forty-five minute format as opposed to uh, you know a, a, an hour or or half hour? Is it?
0: It, it was odd. The, the format was weird. Uh, ABC was the, was a distant third network in those days. I mean, the networks take turns being last. Somebody has to be last. Mm-hmm. And that season, it was ABC's turn to to be at the bottom of the ratings. So uh, events conspired against us, uh, and we did the shows, and then I guess they eventually decided to go back to programming at the half hour and on the hour and Mm -hmm. not fool around with 45-minute shows. It it, it wasn't hard to write. I mean, you just wrote like one and a half times as many sketches as as you would write for a half-hour show and a little less than you had to write for an hour.
1: Yeah. Now now were you involved with any of the guests, the music guests, like now you mentioned Crosby Stills, Nash & Young. Now you've written two two books, right, about David Crosby?
0: Yes, yes. Uh, I have I've known David since the Birds Wow in days. We you know the Birds play when I was in San Francisco, the Birds played San Francisco and I met David when the birds were the house band at a go go bar.
1: Wow. Called
0: <laughs> the Peppermint Tree on Broadway and they were the birds were playing for uh, go-go dances you know girls in fringed bikinis mm-hmm. and boots yeah. doing the pony and the frug in cages <laughs> over the
1: bar <laughs> that's not the usual music you associate them with though
0: yeah <laughs> i mean they'd be playing chimes of freedom and the girls will say don't you have anything with a beat <laughs> uh... And, and that that was actually their last bar job because while they were playing that date in san francisco their first record, uh, "Turn Turn Turn," mm-hmm. was released, yeah. uh, and was by the time they got back to L.A. at the end of three weeks, uh, they were on the radio and the, they were they were number one with a bullet. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, it was, and I and I've just known David socially for years and years and years, and I was I kind of lived through his depressing drug era days with him,
1: yeah.
0: uh, you know, helping where I could, and. Uh, as a result, and partly also from being in San Francisco in the 60s, where you worked in the same venues, you, we often did benefits with uh, the Jefferson Airplane and, and the Grateful Dead and Big Brother of the Holding Company and uh, just, you know, every every Bay Area hack. San Francisco was kind of the, the hotbed of, of new music right, yeah. at that time. So I knew the bands from San Francisco. I knew the Fillmore Auditorium. I knew Bill Graham and when we got uh, it, doing music scene i reacquainted myself with a lot of the bands and the acts so we were doing comedy and music so it it was uh it was a natural uh and i'm i'm still friends with some of the music acts that i met back in those days really uh, uh you know the the, the survivors uh, it is it is it, it's, it's it's in some ways
1: still a small world yeah oh yeah yeah we're going to get to jaws i mean obviously <laughs> that's a big one but uh, some of the other ones you did uh, steve martin's the jerk yeah uh, now you wrote that story right
0: yes yeah, steve and i wrote the, the credits are story by steve martin and carl gottlieb screenplay by steve martin carl gottlieb and michael elias
1: yeah now that's a, that that is a, a riot of a film uh, I thought it was funny, and I noticed you had a part in the film.
0: Yes, can I say the name on the air? Oh, sure. <laughs> I play the character of Iron Ball's McGinty. Yes. <laughs> not many people can have a character name like that?
1: Right. Now, did you write that for yourself, or were you even thinking of you playing that part, or did you just write it and then somehow you ended up doing it?
0: Uh, I, I just wrote it, and we we filmed the scene, and when we were staging the fight, uh, the the climax was this uh, this enormous kick to the groin, accompanied by a sound effects of a of a clank, <laughs> <laughs> and then you cut to Steve and Bernadette in the restaurant afterwards, and he's nursing a a broken foot, and she's saying to him, "You had no way of knowing that was iron balls so again."
1: <laughs> uh, when you're writing this stuff, I mean, I can picture you and Steve Martin sitting down with a couple of beers and and just rolling things out and it must be non-stop
0: <laughs> well it, it's nonstop until it until it stops and then you just sit there staring at each other the only other pink things in the room with an electric typewriter in those days no computers with a typewriter just humming quietly as if to say i'm waiting yeah. <laughs> write something funny
1: <laughs> so how long did it take the two of you to write that story
0: uh, probably three, four months uh, for the first draft, and then a month or two after that for polishes. And then in the meantime, while we were doing that, we filmed a short subject called "The Absent-Minded Waiter," uh, mm-hmm. that Steve starred in with Terry Garr and Buck Henry, and I directed.
1: Ah, yeah,
0: that was that was that was great fun. And then Carl Reiner, uh, oh then. <laughs> Then the geniuses at Paramount decided they didn't want to do a Steve Martin movie. So uh, his producers went across the street to Universal Studios and made a deal over there. And the rest is history. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in the process, the script was rewritten a few more times uh, by a very, very funny writer named Michael Elias, who's an old friend of Steve's. And then, of course, Carl Reiner, who's no comedy slouch.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he,
0: he He contributed a tremendous amount to it. So the, again, there, there's an example of a work that was a great collaboration.
1: Wow, jeez. Now, now you mentioned directing. Um, now you wrote and directed Caveman, correct?
0: With uh, wrote it with Rudy De Luca.
1: Ah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, how? I mean, that had to be a difficult film to write because, I mean, there's no dialogue yeah. <laughs> or very little dialogue, just oogs and uggs.
0: Oogs and ugs, but the. When we wrote the film, in order to you know, kind of make it look like a normal script and uh, to give the actors something to hang on to,
1: mm-hmm.
0: we wrote it like a screenplay with dialogue, and it, let's say uh, Ringo's character name was Atuk. So right. the, there'd be a block you know, where you normally do dialogue, you put Atuk, and then you would put it in parentheses, as if to say, and then you would put the text of what he was supposed to be saying. You know, I love you, or I, you know, what am I going to do with this situation? Mm -hmm. And then we would say, as if to say, we'd put the dialogue, and then we'd put, uh, Ugalunda Wana. And because the actor knew what the sentence was supposed to mean, he could say it. And the audience would get it just as if it were dialogue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was that was a challenge, and and as it turns out, the film you know was is, is full of visual gags, and 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 it's a set in this visually very interesting prehistoric time. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, so it was, you know, it was again fun and challenging to tell a story without a lot of dialogue we had we had essential dialogue we had all the verbs you know to make to do to love
1: yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: to fight you know synonyms for monster r- verbs for to make love uh zug zug <laughs> <laughs> now
1: now did they have to follow exactly what you wrote you know like you say zug zug or or you know some of the when they were trying to make a sentence uh did they have a script to follow, or did you just say, just go ahead and make some noise? No, no, they, noise. They,
0: had a, they had a script to follow. We we had a vocabulary. We had we gave them a little glossary at the beginning of the shoot. We gave them a sheet of paper with all the uh, the translations, mm-hmm. and they were free. To, but they had they kind of had to stick to the words that we had invented for the language.
1: Yeah, yeah, was. Yeah.
0: that same year a movie came out called Quest for Fire that was about prehistoric man. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And. They, had, they made a big deal that you know the great English novelist and, and uh, professor Anthony Burgess had created this language for these uh, pre-literate peoples in the cave era, and it was like a big deal. And I said, no, you know, and I I met the director Jean Louis Anand, and and I, I you know I was kind of joking with him. I said, no, oh, we were both. Faced with the same issue, problem we're writing about, and he just dismissed me because mine was this cheap little comedy with you know uh, with Ringo Starr and you know fart jokes right. and and dinosaurs getting high uh, or Tyrannosaurus Rex getting high, right. and he is, his was this you know incredible you know exploration of the human condition with you know Daryl Hannah the cute blonde cave girl saving all the kind of brown-skinned, stupider cave people. It was kind of a racist film. But, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, uh, and he, he didn't accept that we had the same problem, and we did. Yeah. We had to communicate using a foreign language that our cast understood and that the audience would have to figure out from the context.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah,
0: And you can actually figure out a lot, a lot in, a, in a visual medium because our principal way of getting information is through our eyes if you can see stuff you can understand it so uh language isn't as important as some people
1: think right yeah now when you cast ringo starr in there was was it written with the intent that he would be in the film or did it just no, happen? it was
0: written uh it was written for kind of a, 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 a modestly sized uh well, it was written for like a schnook, you know, for for a kind of
1: sort of like Gilligan's Island. A,
0: like, yeah, kind of like for for a, for a clever for a clever loser.
1: Yeah, like a Gilligan type.
0: <laughs> Gilligan, uh, or 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 somebody small in physical stature. And when we started casting, this was before Danny DeVito ever had a career, so we didn't know about him. Mm-hmm. So it was it kind of boiled down to Dudley Moore or Ringo. Ah. Okay. Dudley Moore was busy.
1: <laughs> now, were you a fan of the Beatles? Of course. Yeah. Uh,
0: h- how could you not be?
1: Yeah. Had you known Ringo before he was in the movie? or? No,
0: no, I had just, uh, I had met him once he had committed to the picture. He was living in Los Angeles at the time, so I met him during the interviews and, and during the casting process. And then once he was set for the film, we still had a few months of prep before we moved to Mexico to do the actual filming. So I, I would see him around town or we'd, we'd socialize occasionally. And I, we gave a big cast party for, at my house. My then wife and I gave a big cast party for the producers and cast and, and crew before we left for the wilds of Durango, Mexico. And uh, at that party, Ringo and Barbara Bach locked eyes and by the end of the picture, they were an item, and they've yeah. been together ever since.
1: Wow. Yeah, and that, that's that's really, you know, quite a thing in, in the business they're in. <laughs> I mean.
0: It is. It is. It, the, the longevity of that relationship is, uh, is blessed.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now Jaws.
0: Uh, the fish.
1: Okay. <laughs> How did you become involved with Jaws?
0: Um I remember early in this interview, I said that I was talking a lot about collaboration and community.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Steven Spielberg and I had the same agent, a guy named Mike Medavoy, who worked at ICM. And Mike was very big on putting his clients together, you know, kind of cross-pollinating talents. hmm so he, he introduced uh, Steven to me and me to Steven. Uh, Stephen was a new kid in town. He was working as a contract director at Universal, the youngest guy doing television in those days, uh, and we got on well. He was new in town. I had been here for four or five years already. Uh, I knew a lot of filmmakers and experimental visual artists, and we would go around to you know these watch these. 16 millimeter underground films being screened. We, anywhere there was a movie being screened that wasn't in a, in a theater, you, you know, we'd find it. And we, we hung out. We wrote some projects together, hoping to sell them. Couldn't sell a project together because Stephen was locked in to direct. If we, you know, if we went out on a with a with a movie to sell, mm-hmm. the understanding was that if the studio bought it, they'd have to hire Stephen as the director, and nobody would take a chance.
1: Yeah, now now they're begging you.
0: <laughs> it was you, world would have been a different place if we had gotten out there and sold some of that stuff early. But in any case, we didn't, and Stephen went off to do Sugarland Express for Zanuck and Brown, mm-hmm. and came back and saw the script for Jaws and said, "Maybe I'll do this next if you guys are good with that." And Zanuck and Brown thought he he might be good for the picture. And then he sent me the script and said, what do you think? And I told him what I thought, and then he said, uh, do you, want, you could be in it as an actor. I had been an actor in a couple of other Steven Spielberg movies uh, for television.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He said, you know, why don't you come on as an actor? Do you see a part in here that you could play? So uh, I looked at the script with like a true artist and counted all the lines, and the guy who had the most lines who wasn't already cast was Meadows, <laughs> the publisher of the paper.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I said, that's a good part because he appeared on a lot of pages. And I went through the studio casting process. I was approved to be a member of the cast, so I was going to be on location for a little while doing that part. And then we had a long conversation with the producers about the screenplay, and the bottom line was they hired me to do a dialogue polish very, very close to the start of production. And then uh, that little dialogue polish turned into a complete... Restructuring and reworking of the script, and we—I was writing, you know, during production and while I was acting, and when the smoke and dust cleared, I shared the screenplay credit with Peter Benchley, who wrote the novel. Mm-hmm. The First draft, and I played a part from Meadows, and then the
1: rest was history. Yeah. Now, with your book, the Little Blue Book for filmmakers, um, you know, you're trying to help people avoid problems and things uh jaws i take it gave you a lot of experience with that i understand there were a lot of difficulties in the production of it
0: huge huge problems with with uh, with jaws mostly due to the mechanical shark uh some the completely unrelated to the shark but just having to do with a company being on an unfamiliar location in an area where half the population had no interest in having a film company messing up their daily routines mm-hmm. Uh, so there were a lot, you know, lots of challenges, but the beauty of Jaws in terms of its production was it was a classic studio film, and by 1974, when Jaws was made, the studio system was a pretty marvelous thing to see in operation. It had evolved you know, for 60 years of Hollywood. They really knew how to make a movie. Under you know the studio way,
1: yeah,
0: and the studio solutions to problems. Although they may just appear to the outsider as throwing money at the problem, uh, the studio solutions are actually pretty elegant, and have been worked out by trial and error, for 50 years of movies. You know before you even got there. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote that book, The Jaws Log, which is about the making of the movie, mm-hmm. I take the reader on a little backstage tour kind of like we do in the in little blue book uh, and I explain you know why things are the way they are in the making of movies because there's a history to it and there's you know there's a right way or wrong way in the studio way right. of doing things and and the studio way sometimes, and, you know, it was is highly evolved, or was, and, you know, a little less so now. But in those days, you, you could safely say that if you had a Hollywood crew and professional people working on a production with the backing of a major studio, uh, they knew how to make movies, no question about
1: it. Yeah. yeah. Now, when you wrote uh, Jaws 2 and Jaws 3, uh, I mean, after writing Jaws... It was such a big film. Uh, is is it daunting to try to do a, a sequel to a movie like that?
0: Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, and, and it, it, in both Jaws two and Jaws three D, I was kind of hired under similar circumstances. They started the movie without me. They had a script that they thought they liked. They had a director they thought they liked on Jaws on Jaws two, and once the new director and his wife who had screenwriter uh, ambitions had tampered with the script and started shooting it It became evident from their work that they were not up to the task and it was a huge franchise obviously being the sequel to the you know biggest movie of all time so i was brought in at a, a very decent salary which was a great motivator uh and I did what I could to fix the script, and what people forget is that Jaws Two was the most successful sequel in the history of movies until godfather two
1: really wow
0: yeah it was a, it was a it was a very successful sequel and it, it it played well you know it was it was well received globally um Nothing to be ashamed of, right. it wasn't didn't have the magic of the first one
1: right that's I mean when you're working against with not just jaws but any film, I think it's always difficult because you're people are looking back at the original and right. they want that same feeling
0: right, which is the genius of Coppola when he did Godfather one and two I mean that i mean he I think he's he did it as well as anybody's ever done it. And as well as anybody may ever do it in the future, mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, quite artful and, and beautifully worked out. Yeah. But normally, you know, there's an iron law of sequels that I quote uh, frequently, it's only the last one loses money.
1: Right.
0: You know, uh, which is why we see, you know, Friday the 13th Part 12, right. Police <laughs> Academy 16. Yeah. You know, and you know and for all we know transformers 25
1: <laughs> right
0: in the year in the year 2100 there will be transformers movies
1: probably right <laughs> now with all the films you've written and uh, directed and and also um, the TV shows that you've done i mean you've done some great stuff but for you personally is there any that you feel that you know this is the one you enjoyed the most
0: well um paradoxically you know the jaws was the most fun because it was um, it was a, a true collaboration nobody had anything to prove steven did not yet have the reputation that he has now he had his first film had been a box office flop a, a critical success mm-hmm. but a box office flop
1: yeah.
0: he needed a commercial hit jaws had all the Earmarks of a commercial hit. It was based on a popular summer novel. Uh, there was a good awareness of it. Uh, you know, nobody knew that it would, you know, strike that chord in the public. But while we were making the film, we were working under very difficult conditions, a long way from home. Uh, when I left the set, I had been there for three months, and Stephen and Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss and Roy Scheider had to stay and do all the stuff at sea which took months to get 30 seconds you know, 6 minutes of usable footage
1: right. wow. uh,
0: it was a very, a very difficult and challenging film but it was solved by col- collaborative effort and enthusiastic producers who supported the project it just kind of It got made in spite of everything, and because everybody pitched in, everybody was kind of selfless about it. I mean, the illustration I use is that the part of Meadows, the part i had signed on to be an actor, when I was doing the rewrite as a writer, I had to cut the part of Meadows. That's wow. the most painful thing, you know, <laughs> an actor writer can do. You're, right, you're working on the script and you're saying, "Well, give this guy less dialogue.
1: Yeah, cutting your own wrist.
0: <laughs> Take him out of this scene. Uh, it was, you know, that was that was hard to do. Normally, I, uh, you know, uh, in, a, in a more, you know, egocentric production team, I'd be arguing, "Well, Meadows has to be there for this," and I'd invent reasons for it and put my character in the scene, and try to, you know, pump up my uh, my my on screen time, but I, I, I didn't even think of that for a moment. It was if it was necessary for the story to cut Meadows out of it, out he went.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, and that, and the whole film was done that way. Wow. You know, every compromise that was made was made for the most. Uh, when 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 we had to compromise because of time or budget, the compromise was always the best that could be achieved under the circumstances.
1: hmm yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, and the, the, obviously the, that dedication shows up in the sincerity of the film.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, Kyle, I'd like to finish up with uh, two final questions. Sure. Taking us away, stepping back from your films and your TV shows and your writing and directing and everything else in your book, when you sit back and watch TV, what's your favorite TV shows now and of all time?
0: Oh, okay, uh... My favorite TV shows now are the hard-action dramas on, on the cable networks, of Sons of Anarchy, uh-huh. Boardwalk Empire, Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. uh, Homeland. The, I mean, some of the, the best dramatic writing being done in television, some of the best acted, never mind television, some of the, the best sustained dramatic writing being done for the screen these days is on the small screen. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, every week they do episodes that put most movies to shame. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I, I kind of love Basic Cable mm-hmm. uh, because they, they're allowed to take chances. They're allowed to deal with controversial subject matter. Right. And they attract, you know, an awfully lot of wonderful, talented writers. So uh, there's that. And, and some of the comedy shows, uh, you know. Obviously, you know things like Family Guy uh, uh-huh. uh, and Parks and Recreation. These, these are, these are shows that just you know resonate. They're they're funny. They're they're real. They're real because some, sometimes within, within a surreal framework. They have an internal logic. Uh, they're just they're just fun to watch. Yeah, uh, that's television. Um, Movies is a less interesting place to watch. Well, that, things. that
1: was my next question. What's your favorite movies?
0: Oh, uh, oh, and oh, but I should say, and the favorite old television shows, oh, yeah. things like Your Show of Shows and classic, uh, yeah. old Lucy episodes. Uh, the, some of that stuff that's uh, that's still on uh, running, running out there on TNT and, and yeah. Nick at Night and.
1: We're so lucky to be able to see those things over and over. If we, you know, if you choose to. In the old
0: days, you wouldn't have that chance. Yeah. So, uh, kind of, yeah, the kind of golden age of series television. I like, you know, Frasier and Cheers and and uh, mm-hmm. the M T M
1: shows. Yeah.
0: Uh, th- th- those were my favorites.
1: Yeah. Now, what about movies? What What are your favorite movies?
0: movies? Uh, boy, you know, I'm I'm a member of. The, motion picture academy so i get a chance to see most all all the nominated films certainly and i get screeners of of uh, films sent to my house
1: that
0: mm-hmm. producers want to be considered you know you get these screeners for your consideration Yeah, and i'm exposed to a lot of the modern movies and i hate to say how how little i enjoy them i mean really? the the big studios are making these giant sequels, prequels, reboots, comic books Mm -hmm. Uh, there's not a hint of original thinking at the executive level they're just making
1: Did you hear the rumor that they're going to make a sequel to Casablanca? Uh,
0: Yeah, I've heard that Uh, you know
1: I couldn't believe it.
0: <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, it, 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 why? Yeah, you know?
1: that, I mean, it, it just totally blew me away when I heard that.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and and, and it, it's, it's like you know, I'm, I'm going to write, uh, I'm going to write Dickens' Great Expectations again. Yeah. Oh, you, no, you're not. You're not Dickens. You, you know, it can't. You know, it can't be done. You can make a good movie. Yeah. But why? That one's been done. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't paint the Mona Lisa twice.
1: Right, yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: and and, and it's, it's foolish to try.
1: Yeah.
0: It's, copying the masters is something that art students do to develop their eyes and, and their, their hand skills.
1: Right, yeah.
0: And they copy. Yeah. Uh, for a commercial studio to copy is basically saying, I am so callow and inexperienced and stupid that I can only reproduce another great artist's work.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's, that, it's that, that, you, you know, know they're going just for the money because obviously there's people out there who are writing good stuff, but they they want to go the safe way. I think. Oh,
0: absolutely. I mean, you no, know, it's, it's if you spend 150 or 200 million dollars on a uh, gadget film, uh, you can t- turn to your shareholders and say, "Well, I'm just doing what works." Mm-hmm. And sadly, that film will probably make money globally, unless it's John Carter on Mars, which is a smack in the face for everybody who thought that the formula was uh, foolproof.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's
0: nothing foolproof, and there's a lot of fools in Hollywood that will prove that to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, every every decent film that I'm looking at uh, is a, is an independent picture with multiple sources of financing because in no, those you know no stupid studio would put up the entire budget
1: yeah mm-hmm.
0: and as a result uh, you have and that, and and apparently really good work is being done zero dark thirty is, is uh, probably very going to be very effective mm-hmm. uh, uh some of the smaller films the european film the untouchables uh, there are quality films out there. Argo is very entertaining and, and fast-paced. Mm-hmm. These are films kind of made outside the normal studio development process right. because the studio development process is broken. Yeah, uh, and I don't know how they'll recover from that because if cause if they don't, um, they will go the way of the dinosaur.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
0: So of of, of the new movies, is hardly anything I like, and 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 in. Old classic films, uh, I, I tend to drift over to you know, boys' adventure fiction and westerns. You know, The Wild Bunch, uh, uh,
1: yes.
0: uh, The Magnificent Seven, Casablanca, of course, mm-hmm. Gunga Din, one of the great yep. black and white adventure films of all time. Yeah. Uh, anything with Buster Keaton in it.
1: Uh, I was going to say, any comedies in there? Because, oh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I mean, you write too. comedy too.
0: Oh, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin of course. Yeah. And and uh some of Billy Wilder's earlier comedies. Yeah. yeah. Uh some of those, and, and and Preston Sturgis. I mean there's there's the a film called uh, Sullivan's Travels which is a magnificent piece of fluff but with a very accurate depiction of Hollywood studios.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Jeez. And of uh, Paths of Glory, Kubrick, you know, genius, absolute yeah. genius.
1: Yeah. Hmm. well kyle i appreciate so much that you, t- you took so much time to talk to us ab- about your your films and and your writing and your books and i want to make sure that everybody goes out and the little blue book for filmmakers it's it's definitely a must uh, all of the people who are uh, you know wondering about how to make a film or even somebody who wants to do like you say web web episodes or or anything on the web uh, this book is going to really help them out and uh, and I want to make sure that everybody goes out, and we're going to have a link on our website so people can just click and go and buy it.
0: That'll be great. I, it's, uh, uh, it's it's worth buying. I, you know, I, it's, I'm not just speaking as an interested author, uh, but as someone who wrote a book to fill a niche that I thought was kind of empty, and uh, I hope that our book and others will help Young filmmakers yeah, make it, better movies.
1: Yeah, it's just—I mean—it's loaded with so much information. I mean, like I said, it's—it's it's so much packed into a little—a little book that it's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Kyle. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Okay, thanks. Kyle Gottlieb, I want to thank him so much for taking the time to talk to us here at On Screen and Beyond. Just a, such a fascinating guest, the things that he has done. It's just so many different projects that he's worked on, and and I just love the films he's made and uh, his his little cameo roles, I guess you'd call them. I don't know what if those are cameos or what, but the bit parts that he's playing in them there, you know, Iron Balls McGinty and everything else that he's done. Uh, you know, look him up on IMDb. You can see all the things he's done. He just fascinating and uh, the stories he's told us uh tell a friend be sure to have them listen to this episode of on screen and beyond because uh kyle's a great guy that is it we are done with another episode of on screen and beyond and uh, i want to remind you once again if you're doing your last minute shopping be sure to go to onscreenandbeyond.com and uh, click on our sponsors and that will take you to uh, their site and you can do all the shopping doesn't cost any more and it's no different than going to them in the first place except that will help support the show on screen and beyond so it's your way to help us out we'd appreciate that and uh, whether it's uh, the if you're listening to this after the holiday season it doesn't matter just keep shopping you know if you if you got a little money to uh, do some shopping on your own go ahead and do that but it's year-round we have those uh, connections that you can click on it and uh, we'd appreciate that so, if you have a suggestion that you want to get out to us, uh, you'd like to have somebody here or on, on screen to be on. Email it to us at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. dot com. I'll see what I can do about getting that person on. And uh, if you just want to chat or just send something to me, just to say hi, whatever, or to let me know where you're from, I always love to hear where our listeners are here at On Screen and Beyond. And uh, we, I, I get emails from all over the world, and I've had people from uh, uh, Asia, China, uh, Germany, uh, where else? England, uh, Mexico. Uh, Brazil and just so many different places and I love to hear from you and uh, you know I appreciate it uh, anytime you uh, leave a suggestion or or uh, you know something that'll help us improve the show we 'd really enjoy hearing from you. So, anyways, if you want to do that, email me at feedback at on screen and be on. I get to read them all. I read every one of them, and I try to answer, I will answer every one of them. I try to do it as soon as I can, uh, but sometimes uh, I get so many interviews going on that uh, it just it builds up, and i don't have time to do it as fast as I wish I could. But if you do, go ahead. love to hear from you well that's it. That is a wrap for this episode of On screen to on. And until next week, when we once again take you on screen and beyond, I'm Brian Zemrak, Take care.